And good morning, everybody. We're going to be continuing our series for the book of First Peter this morning. Before we uh, jump into that, though, let me just ask you, how many of you are fans of the uh, Complete Idiots Guidebooks? You may have seen these before, the Complete Idiots Guidebooks, or maybe the, whole, uh, the, uh, the Four Dummies reference books collections. You ever seen those, right? I love these books. These are, these are great resources. You can get, it's amazing, you get a really comprehensive education uh, through these different books. I've got a few of my own personal collection up here this morning, uh, The Complete Idiot's Guide to World Religions. Uh, I use this quite a bit when I teach at uh, Northwestern College in Bethel. Uh, my classes on world religions there. Don't, don't tell anybody, but... Uh, uh, this, one, uh, this one is one I really need, Home Maintenance for Dummies. Uh, some of you guys know that uh, that's a pretty applicable title for uh, for me. I uh, I certainly am not uh, very skilled in that area. Uh, another one, uh, this one actually wasn't too much of a help for me. This is called the Complete Idiot's Guide to Labrador Retrievers. Uh, I I've gone through uh, two labs in five years now, so uh, this one uh, this one this one doesn't work. You might want to just skip on that one. Um, the, uh, here's another one that hasn't worked too well for me quite yet, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Personal Finance in your 20s and 30s. Uh, I'm still, uh, still trying to work on some of that stuff. And uh, they actually here, this is one of my favorite sermon prep resources. This is The uh, Complete Idiot's Guide to the Bible. It's amazing the stuff you can draw uh, out, of this, uh, out of this book here. But, but uh, I really enjoy the, uh, these, uh, these Four Dummies guides or these Complete Idiot's Guides. And uh, what I want to propose here this morning is that we come up with a new Four Dummies guidebook for Christians. In fact, as you can see on the screen behind me, I've already got a title in mind for this new book. It's called The Sojourner's Travel Guide for Not-So-Dummies. All right? Now, uh, if we were going to write a Four Dummies reference book for Christian living, there aren't too many passages of Scripture that would serve as a better guide for us than the section of 1 Peter that we're going to be looking at today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. In fact, one commentator I read this morning, uh, or uh, this week actually, mentioned that the entirety of 1 Peter, the entirety of this letter, could be summed up in these two short verses. And uh, what I want to propose this morning is that we create a new Four Dummies reference guide for Christian living. And not just any reference guide, but, but a travel guide. A travel guide based on Peter's divinely inspired encouragements here to help us on our journey through life as followers of Jesus Christ. Sort of like a, a modern-day pilgrim's progress, if you will. Now, I can just see John Bunyan's rolling over in his grave somewhere, just here in this. But, uh, but here's the plan this morning. I want to read this passage of Scripture together, and then I want to come back and I want to share with you some of my ideas for this new book, some of the chapter ideas I have in mind for this new Sojourner's Travel Guide for Not-So-Dummies. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, why don't you turn and take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 12, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, the first chapter I have in mind for this new book, The Sojourner's Travel Guide for Not-So-Dummies, chapter one, my working title is this, Resident or Alien, subtitle, Don't Lose Your Passport. Resident or Alien, Don't Lose Your Passport. Peter begins this passage by reminding us as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, he begins by reminding us right away of our true identity. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Peter here says, we are foreigners and exiles in this world. The Greek words that Peter uses here for foreigners and exiles are the words paroikos and parepidemos. And these two words are essentially synonymous with one another. They refer to a foreigner temporarily residing among the native peoples, or a stranger or transient visitor who's just, just passing through, just on a brief stay. As you see here, the NIV translates these two words as foreigners and exiles. Other translations of scripture use terms like aliens and strangers. Others use sojourners and exiles. Uh, another translation I looked at this week used sojourners and pilgrims. But the point of all of these translations, though, is simply this. Peter admonishes us as believers, reminds us right away that this world is not our home. We're just temporary visitors passing through. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, clarifies for us where our true citizenship lies. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Friends, as Christians, you are a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. And friends, if you could see the cover of your spiritual passport this morning, the cover of your spiritual passport would, this morning would read, citizen of of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. Last week, you may recall, as we looked at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, I talked about some of the identifying terms Peter used for followers of Jesus Christ. One of those was Peter describes us there in verse 9 as a holy nation. He says, we as believers are a holy nation. The word holy in Greek is hagios. It means to be set apart, to be distinct. We are a holy nation. We are a people who are set apart from the world around us. We are a peculiar people. Now last week when I talked about this idea that we are a holy nation, I could see some of your minds working as I talked about that concept. And I could tell that some of you were thinking some of the same things I was thinking as I read those words. Some of you were probably thinking, but Jason, I don't feel very holy. You know, Jason, I know we're called a holy nation, but you know, you don't know the things I struggle with each day throughout the week. I don't feel very holy. I'm not so sure that that term applies to me, Jason. But friends, I want to assure you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a person who has put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are holy today. 
You are holy. That's God's truth. That's not me saying that. That's God's truth. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul describes the church in Corinth as a people who have been sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we read that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's incredible. You may not think or feel holy this morning, but you, if you're a follower, a person who's put their trust in Jesus Christ, you have been made holy in the eyes of God this morning. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been made holy positionally in our standing with God. And as we saw last week, friends, this isn't any, because of anything that we have done. It's not by our own works, our own effort but it's only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. When he shed his blood, when he sacrificed himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to purchase the forgiveness of our sins, to make us holy in the eyes of God. We are a holy nation. Now, friends, here's where Peter's I urge you comes into play. Peter says, I urge you, or I plead with you, The status we've been given here, friends, should compel us to pursue a holy walk with God. It should motivate us out of obedience and out of love and gratitude for who we are in Jesus Christ. It should compel us, friends. If this is our status, if we are a holy nation, if we have been set apart, we shouldn't look like the citizens of this world. Our lives, friends, should be markedly different. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to travel to Europe with my father, speaking in a number of settings around Europe, and we took three days on our way home to, to stop and visit Paris, France, see some of the sites and museums there in Paris, France. Great experience, but friends, I'm going to tell you something. It was very clear to everybody who saw me walking around Paris, France, that I was not a resident of Paris, France. I mean, it was pretty clear to anybody who saw me, I was an alien in that country. I mean, here I am, you know, Paris is this high class, high culture, uh, you know, destination. I'm walking around my flip flops, cargo shorts. I got my Green Bay Packers t-shirt on. I I did not look like a resident, trust me, all right? I mean, I remember we go to get a cab ride and we we told the cab driver we wanted to go see Notre Dame and he looked at us like we were asking to go to a football game or something, right? I I mean, it was pathetic. We'd go into the cafes and try to order bagels and croissants and, you know, they're just looking at us. They have our pronunciation were just disastrous, right? I mean, it was very clear to everybody who saw me that I was not a resident, but very clearly I was an alien in that culture. I was a stranger there. Now, here's an interesting question to ask yourselves this morning. Am I a resident or an alien? Am I a resident or an alien? Do people confuse me for a citizen of this world? Or is it clear that I'm just a sojourner here? A temporary visitor just passing through? Am I a resident or an alien? As Christians, friends, we are God's holy nation. We are in this world, but we are not to be of the world. We're here for a time, but we're just strangers passing through. We're aliens. We are a peculiar people. So let me say again, friends, Remember, don't lose your passports. Remember who you are and where your true identity lies. 
You are a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. Now, chapter 2 of our Sojourner's Travel Guide for Not-So-Dummies this morning. Chapter 2, my title is this, Don't Drink the Water. Subtitle, The Perils of Sojourning. Don't Drink the Water or The Perils of Sojourning. When I was a freshman in college, I had a unique opportunity to take a month-long study, uh, study tour to uh, the country of Ecuador. It was an anthropology class, and we were studying different cultures there in Ecuador. And uh, during one of the weeks of our anthropology class in Ecuador, they bussed me and a group of students out into the Amazon jungle, and then we hiked about two hours into the Amazon jungle, and we lived for a week with a family of Quechua Indians there in the Amazon jungle. It was an incredible experience. We were living there in their, their long hut. I mean, uh, I mean, it was primitive, cooking meals over the open fire. The, uh, the father we were staying with, he was actually a medicine man for the Quechua village that we were staying in. I mean, it was an incredible experience for an 18-year-old kid, right, from Eden Prairie. I'm, uh, you know, it was awesome. Well, one of the things they warned us about before we even got to the village, they, the, guy, the people who were leading our trip, they said very clearly to us, do not drink the water, okay? If you drink the water, you're going to get sick. And so we were all very careful. We brought in bottled water with us for the week, and, and we were very careful about not drinking the water. Well, the first night we were there at this, uh, at this uh, Quechua Indian village, we're having our first meal there in the middle of this long hut with the family we were staying with. And the wife of this family, she comes along and she's serving our food. And then she comes out with this big pitcher of water and she starts pouring water in these little plastic cups for each of us. And uh, without even thinking, I grabbed a plastic cup and I took a big drink of the water. And my friend sitting next to me, he just elbows me right away. He's like, what are you doing? Don't drink that water. And I said, oh, man, I, I, and, and I said to the guy, who uh, the Quechua man, I said, is, is this water okay to drink? And, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's filtered water, no bugs. And I said, okay, cool. And, and, my, uh, and my buddy, he looks over at me, he's like, I, I'm not so sure about that. I, I'd abstain from that water if I were you. And I said, no, it's okay, it's filtered water, he said. And he said, well, I'm not so sure about that. So I asked the dad, again, this Quechua Indian man we were standing with, I said, I said sir, you're sure this is filtered water? And he said, oh, yeah, it's filtered. Come, come, I'll show you. And so he took me around the back of the long hut, and there behind in their property, there was a stream that was running through the back of their property. They had diverted the water from the stream with these PVC pipes into this little collecting pond. And he said, see there, that's our drinking water, this, this stagnant pond in the backyard. And I said, I, I thought you said this was filtered water. And he said, oh, it's filtered water. And I said, well, how do you filter it? Well, he pulls out this little cheesecloth, and he shows me how they pour the water through the cheesecloth, and he says, see, it's filtered, no bugs. Man, needless to say, later that evening, I became violently ill. In fact, I became so ill, they actually had to uh, transport me a couple hours into a, to a missionary jungle hospital for uh, IV treatments, and uh, I was sick for about a month, even after I came back home from Ecuador. My college roommates, for, for months afterwards, I lost 20 pounds. My college roommates called me Gauntman the rest of the year. Gauntman, because I had lost so much weight. But friends, just as I should have heeded my buddy's warning to abstain from drinking that water in Ecuador, so too the Apostle Peter warns us here to abstain. To abstain from sinful desires. 
Peter says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter says to abstain. The word abstain means to hold yourself back. And Peter here says we should hold ourselves back from sinful desires. What are sinful desires? Sinful desires are anything incompatible with our fellowship with God and his will for our lives. They're perversions of God's will, perversions of God's good plan for our lives and relationships. Sinful desires can be anything from lust to greed to jealousy to vanity. The Bible warns us against a whole host of perversions of God's will and plan for our lives. And you see, friends, once we partake of these sinful desires, they act like parasites, attacking the vitality of our relationship with God. And these desires, they ultimately come from our enemy, Satan. He's a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And Satan uses sinful desires to wage war against our souls. What does that mean? To wage war against your soul. Friends, the answer is found in John 10.10. In the words of Jesus, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friends, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wages war against our soul. He comes to steal your joy. The joy that comes from knowing who you are and your identity in Jesus Christ. He comes to kill your passion. Your passion for living for Jesus and honoring him in all areas of your life. And he comes to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your effectiveness at influencing others for Jesus Christ. Satan's whole program of sinful desires is about neutralizing our identity and influence as followers of Jesus Christ. He tries to deceive us into settling for less than God's best for our lives. And God's best for our lives, Jesus says, is I have come that you might have life and life to the full. That's what God wants to us, wants for us. He wants to give us life to the full. He wants us to know our identity, our calling, our purpose, the joy of living for him. He says, if you follow me, I will give you life and life to the full. But Satan wants to rob you of that. He comes to steal your joy and kill your passion and destroy your testimony. He wants to rob you of life to the full. It reminds me of a story I heard about a man who had gone on a game show and he won uh, the grand prize was a, a first-class cruise to the Bahamas. I mean, just incredible. First-class cruise to the Bahamas. I mean, the whole thing, the, the best suite on the ship, uh, first-class amenities all the way. And, and the highlight of this prize was he actually got to sit and eat each night at the captain's table in the banquet hall. And this guy was so excited. I mean, first-class all the way. Well, the day of the cruise arrived, and 
And uh, the man, he walks up the, the dock and up the gangway to the ship. And, you know, the dock is just lined with people, you know, clapping and cheering, waving goodbye to their family and friends. And this guy, he's just so excited to go on this cruise. And uh, he gets up onto the ship and the concierge says, hey, sir, let me, uh, let me take you and show you your room. And he looks at the man's tickets. He says, oh, you've got a great room. You've got the best suite on the ship. And this guy, he's getting so excited, he can't wait to go see his room. And so he follows the concierge. The concierge leads him to the hallway leading down into the first class area of the ship. And he starts walking through the door down the hallway. And all of a sudden, he gets stuck in the door. And he's trying to force his way through, but he's stuck. He can't get down the hall. And the concierge is like, come on, hurry up. You know, i got to show you. And this guy, he's stuck. Well, it turns out all of his balloons that he has with him are stuck in the door. And he can't get his balloons through the door. He's got this big bunch of balloons. And he's trying to get these balloons through the door, but he can't get them in. And he starts shoving them in, and he finally works his way through. He gets all these balloons into the hallway. And he walks down the hallway, and the concierge opens the door to his first-class suite. And he sees inside, and it's just incredible. I mean, king-size bed, hot tub. I mean, it's just the whole thing is it's just awesome. And he's like, I can't wait to go check out my room. And so he starts walking through the door. And sure enough, he gets stuck again in the door. And he can't get these darn balloons through the door. But he can't let go of them. Because, you see, this one here, he, he's had since he was 12 years old. This one here, he picked up when he was in his 20s. And he can't let go of them. They mean too much. And so he just decided, I'm, maybe I'll just try to come back later. And Walked back out to the main deck of the cruise ship and started looking around. And again, it was just beautiful. You know, the swimming pool, the water slides. The place had a movie theater. I mean, it was incredible. Well, about 5.30 came along and the, uh, the announcement came over the speakers on the ship that all the first-class passengers were invited into the captain's banquet room to sit and have a meal at the captain's table. And this man, he was so excited he was going to be able to sit next to the captain. And he walked down the deck of the cruise ship to the banquet hall and he looked in the doors and there in front of him was the most amazing spread of food he had ever seen laid out before. I mean, everything you could ever want was just laid out on this huge table. And there at the head of the table was the captain. And the captain was waving him in, come on in. I've saved a seat right next to me for you. And this man, he gets so excited, he starts walking in and once again his balloons get stuck in the door. But you see, he, he won't let go of his balloons. I, I got that one when I was 34, and I've had that one since I was, oh, that one I got when I was about 13 or 14. And he just couldn't let him go. And all along, the captain's waving him in, come on in, look at what I've prepared for you. But he wouldn't let go of his balloons. See, friends, this is why Peter urges us or pleads with us to abstain, to hold yourself back. Don't buy the lies. Don't buy the lies of the sinful desires that the enemy brings into our paths because they hold us back. They keep us from experiencing the fullness of joy that God has for us. God is like that captain waving us in, come, I have the most incredible relationship for you. I got so much to give you. But too often we're like that man carrying around our balloons and we're settling for just pathetic, worthless things instead of the fullness of joy that God has in store for us. Now the good news today, though, is that God has given us a way to fight back. 
We don't have to succumb to the parasites of sinful desires. It's possible, friends, to immunize yourself against the enemy. In fact, James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Immunize ourselves against the enemy. And how do we do this? Well, God has given us a vaccine. God's given us a vaccine, and there's actually four doses to this vaccine. Dose number one is confession. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, do you want to immunize yourself against the sinful desires, the lies of the enemy? Number one, first and foremost, you need to confess your sins. You need to admit to the heavenly, our Heavenly Father what of those sinful desires you have picked up along your journey in life. And you need to give them to God. And you need to claim the power of his forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because God is faithful and just and he'll forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The second dose of our vaccine is to renew. To renew. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to renew our minds, friends. We need to make them new. We need to have them transformed after having been tainted by the sinful desires that we once struggled with. Thirdly, the third dose of our vaccine is this. We need to immerse. We need to immerse ourselves in the truths of God's word. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. What are God's very great and precious promises? Friends, it's God's word. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by sinful desires. Friends, immerse yourselves in the truths of God's word and you can escape the corruption of sinful desires. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so if you want to immunize yourself against the sinful desires, the lies of the enemy, you need to confess, you need to renew your mind, you need to immerse yourself in the truths of Scripture. And then number four, you need to indulge. Peter says to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our soul, but he says there is something you can indulge in. You can indulge all you want in the good qualities of life that God says leads to life and life to the full. You can eat them up as much as your heart desires. What are these good qualities you should indulge in? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Peter says, eat them up, man. Indulge in these things. These are good. These are good. And he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is how we immunize ourselves against the enemy and against the lies 
of the sinful desires he brings into our path. We confess our sins, we renew our minds, we immerse ourselves in the truths of Scripture, and we indulge in the godly qualities that lead to life and life to the full. Let me encourage you, friends, take your medicine this week. Take your medicine. Immunize yourself against the enemy, and you'll begin to see more and more victories over the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Chapter 3 this morning is this. Avoid the ugly pilgrim syndrome, subtitled The Winsome Ambassador. Okay, our Sojourner's Travel Guide for Not-So-Dummies, Chapter 3, Avoid the Ugly Pilgrim Syndrome, subtitled The Winsome Ambassador. How many of you ever heard the term the ugly American before? How many of you ever heard the ugly American? How many of you ever traveled overseas and seen an ugly American? All right. Now, the term ugly American is a term that foreigners use uh, often in reference to Americans who are traveling abroad, visiting foreign countries. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, Americans have oftentimes gotten a reputation for being a little bit rude, a little bit obnoxious, impolite as we travel in other cultures, whether it's complaining about the food, you know, man, they, this food they eat here is really weird, you know, and, or uh, the customs of different cultures. And, and far too often, Americans have come across as being just these ugly Americans, and we give people in the rest of the world a distorted image of who we are as a nation because of how we act sometimes when we're traveling in other cultures. Sadly, today, this is how many people in our world perceive the church. Not as ugly Americans, but as ugly pilgrims. A few years ago, David Kinnaman, the president of the Barna Research Group, came out with a landmark study. He put it into a book titled Unchristian. I'd highly encourage you to check this book out if you haven't heard of it before. The Barna Research Group spent years studying thousands of non-Christians, self-professed non-Christians from the Mosaics and Busters generations. Those people born between 1965 and 2002. This is the largest population group in our nation today. It makes up 77% of our nation's population. And the results they found were very disturbing for the church. 50% of this group held a negative view of evangelical Christians. 47% hold a neutral view, and only 3% held a positive view. Why were the numbers so bad? The findings revealed three reasons. Number one, Christians' demeanor and actions that don't match up with Christ's. Number two, Christians are often known more for what we oppose than what we're for. And number three, 85% of the respondents said evangelical Christians are best known for their hypocritical lifestyles. Friends, this is tragic. The world is watching. And far too often, God's people come off looking like ugly pilgrims. Reminds me of the sad quote from Mahatma Gandhi years ago. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It's sad. How we engage the world matters, friends. This is why Peter admonishes us here in verse 12. 
live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The word good here that Peter uses is a Greek word, kalos. It means beautiful, admirable, winsome, praiseworthy, attractive. Friends, can you imagine how cool it would be if those were the first words that non-Christians thought of when they heard the term Christians? If the first words they thought of were beautiful, winsome, admirable, praiseworthy? This is the kind of people we're to be. Winsome ambassadors that draw people to Jesus Christ through our example. So how should we rightly engage the world? Let me just share one example from here in the letter, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15, the Apostle Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, many of us as Christians are really keen on the be prepared to give an answer part of this verse. I'm a Christian apologist myself. I love giving a defense of the faith, and I love giving a verbal proclamation of the gospel. And so I'm quick to focus on the be prepared part. But you need to notice something here, friends. Peter assumes that people will first notice your hope. The reason we're to be prepared with an answer is because people should first notice something different in us that compels them to ask us, what's the deal with you guys? I mean, what's going on in your life that's so different from everybody else in my life? People should notice our hope. The word hope here is a Greek word, elpis. It means a confident expectancy, an unwavering confidence in the faithfulness and promises of God's word. And Christian hope, friends, transforms one's entire outlook on life. It transforms your motivation for living. It even transforms the way you live in this world, your actions, your deeds. A Christian's internal hope will ultimately manifest itself in external action. And our hope should overflow from us. It should spill out from us. Our hope should overflow in our love, how we love others. Our hope should overflow in our generosity, how we use our time, our talents, our treasures for the glory of God. Our hope should overflow in how we serve others, putting others' needs ahead of our own. Our hope should overflow in our humility, not thinking more highly of ourselves, but putting others first, humbling ourselves for the sake of others. Friends, our hope as Christians should cause us to live differently in this world. And when our hope overflows, the world around us can't help but take notice. This past week, I got a really incredible letter from my friends uh, at Youth with a Mission, YWAM, down in Guatemala. You all know back in October I was down, uh, I teach every year down in, uh, in Guatemala for Youth with a Mission, YWAM. My friend uh, Bruce Alberg, the director of the YWAM base, he sent out a Christmas letter and part of it was an update on their recent outreach trip. The YWAM students I had gone to teach, they had just come back from two months of outreach throughout Central America. 
A few weeks ago, they spent a week in a remote village in Guatemala, a village where 85% of the people in this village, hundreds of people in this village, are afflicted with a genetic disease, a genetic condition that causes their skin to be averse to ultraviolet light. Hundreds of people in this village cannot go outside their homes because if they're exposed to UV rays, to UV light, their skin breaks out in terrible tumors. And most of the children in this village, can you imagine how hard it is to keep a child confined to his house? Most of the children in this village have developed these ugly scars and tumors all over their body from this rare genetic condition. As they went and ministered among the people there and loved the people there, these kids that it was incredible. They, they were told by the elders of the village that it was the first time in two years that any foreigners had come to visit them. In fact, the last foreigners who came was the same YWAM group two years earlier. And one night as they were talking to the elders of the village, the elders of the village, they asked these YWAM missionaries, they said, why do you come here? Why do you care? No one comes here. And today the whole village is open to the gospel because they've seen the hands and feet of Christ. They've seen love when no one else would love. They've received compassion when no one else would give compassion. And Jesus is using that to transform this entire village. They've been affected by the gospel, by the love of Christians. See, friends, the believer's hope is different from what the world hopes in. And it changes the way we live as Christians. Different from the unbelieving world around us. See, the unbelieving world around us, they have no confident expectancy. They have no sure source of hope. The believer's hope is odd, yet very compelling. The second encouragement Peter gives us here in 1 Peter 3.15 is to represent Jesus with gentleness and respect. Friends, is it important that we're prepared to verbally proclaim the gospel? Absolutely. However, our proclamation won't mean very much if it's not enhanced by an attitude of love. My dad used to tell me growing up, he used to say, Jason, you can proclaim the truth and win the intellectual argument. But if you lose the war for a person's heart, it's all meaningless. So true. Friends, the winsome ambassador for Christ is the one whose life reflects the beauty of the truth we proclaim. And we proclaim a beautiful truth. We've got the greatest story the world has ever heard. For God so loved the world. Does your life reflect the beauty of the truth we proclaim? You know, you may not have ever considered this, but I want to challenge you with an important reality. As followers of Jesus Christ, as sojourners in this world, every day that you live as a sojourner here on earth, you are either drawing people closer to Jesus or pushing them further away. How we live in this world matters. This is why Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How we live matters. How we treat the people we interact with each day matters. Let me encourage you today, friends. Live your lives in such a way that it makes it easier for people to believe in Jesus. Live your lives in such a way that it makes it easier for people to believe in Jesus. Students here, reach out to that girl in the lunchroom. 
who sits alone every day. Businessmen and women, speak words of encouragement to your coworkers, to your boss. Soccer moms, offer to pray for that overstressed mom you sit next to at practice this week. Let the hope of Christ overflow from within you. Engage the world with gentleness and respect. People are watching. They notice. And there's no better witness. There's no better argument than an authentic and winsome Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encouragements from the book of 1 Peter. Lord, we thank you for who we are as your people, a holy nation, distinct and set apart. And God, we pray that you would empower us to live as holy people. God, help us to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. God, empower us to immunize ourselves against the lies of the enemy. Help us to rely on the resources that you've given us, Lord, to find victory over the sinful desires that we may have picked up in our lives. Transformation is possible because of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we also want to be winsome ambassadors. Help us, Lord, to show the world your hope. Let it overflow from within us, in our love, our service, our generosity, our humility. Help us be a people who make it easier for others to believe in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.